this is a Solitaire Media original podcast. Hello! Welcome to the Galway podcast. This is Fender Jackson. Happy Friday! You'll notice that the music is a little different today. This is a surprise episode because I bumped into John Robb this week and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to grab him and record him about his new book. Anybody who's waiting for the second episode of BAM, you gotta wait till Tuesday and I'll release it then. John is a music journalist, singer, songwriter, TED talker. If you go onto his Instagram account, you'll see photographs of him with Robert Plant, Johnny Marr, members of The Damned, Sex Pistols, The Clash, Liam Gallagher, John Cooper Clark, and loads more. John is a very well-respected musician and journalist who has lived through the early days of certainly goth and punk, as well as the internet. He's on tour at the moment, promoting his new book called The Art of Darkness, A History of Goth. So I bumped into him in Galway this week and I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to sit down and we discuss the early days of the internet, the early days of punk, the ethos of punk, the misconceptions and nuances of punk and goth music, the influences and key players of goth, including Jim Morrison and The Doors, David Bowie, Iggy Pop, The Velvet Underground, John Lydon, The Cure, Joy Division, Ian Curtis, Section 25, The Virgin Prunes, Bauhaus, particularly Bella Lugosi's Dead, and Daniel Ash, the guitarist, The Cult, Southern Death Cult, and Ian Asprey, and other things. Okay, so let's go to that conversation. Band, wrap it up. This is the Galway Podcast. Hi, who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm John Robb. I edit a website called Loud and War, play in a band called The Membranes, and I write books, and I do lots of other things. Yeah. So, John, it's weird uh, that we're sitting here together because we used to write together uh, for playlighter.com. That's where our paths crossed. Do you want to talk about that, please? Yeah, you make it sound like an office environment. Of course, it was a website, so it was the first experience, really, for a lot of people of writing in that kind of new age. I mean, I had written for a music website before. There was one called Music 365 which was like a, a really early one. And this is the times when people um, couldn't really understand the concepts, wasn't it? So Play Lousy, which was a great website, really good writers on it. Pretty game-changing, I think. I think it, Music 365 was one, it was, it was, it was a bit more formal. Play Lousy was, was kind of informal, quite renegade in its kind of vibe. And the people running it were quite forward-thinking. So it, I think a lot of modern websites... That music websites, I think they grew out of Play Louder because the people from Play Louder ended up running lots of other websites as well. Most a lot of the ideas of it and the way it was written, the, the way it was done, the way it's laid out as well. You see that replicated a lot of places nowadays. But it's quite weird at the time, wasn't it? Because most people didn't, couldn't get their heads around reading about music on the internet, could they? 
it's funny because when we were coming here, actually, we were to talk about Tom Waits. I remember when I first got on the internet and uh, it took about a week to get an email worked out. It was so complicated. And I was the first person anybody knew who had an email and there was no one to email. So I didn't know anybody else had an email. So someone said, you know, there's this thing called the web and it's got loads of uh, like websites on it. So it took ages to get on them because it was such a slow, crackly connection them days. But the first website we found was Tom Waits. Of all the people you would think to have a website, you'd not think Tom Waits would have a website. So the first email I sent was to Tom Waits' website, which I did even at that point in time, most websites didn't have a link for email to email them. And it actually did, but nobody ever wrote back. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they didn't have email addresses. It's like a really ancient times, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's only 25 years ago. But the other thing about the internet is you, you tend to think of it, you know, the, um, it's Tim Berners-Lee that came up with it. It feels like he must be about 90 years old, this kind of really old dude. But in one of the green projects that I do, we actually spoke to his brother. And his brother is a green uh, academic at Lancaster University. And he's younger than me. <laughs> and then it turns out Tim Berners-Lee's only a year older than me. Because the internet now, even though it seems like a long time since we all got on it, it actually also seems like something that's really instant and modern. And it's really hard to imagine the architects of it being fairly young. Mm-hmm. So you're very much a journalist today. Uh, how did you make the transition from being a singer to a journalist? The, the, the singing and writing thing was all part and parcel, the same thing. So when punk came along, it was just about, uh, it was so exciting, punk. And it, was, it wasn't just buying records and collecting records. There really was a clarion call, you know, go and do it yourself. And maybe we misread it, but we thought that's what you're meant to do. And we wanted to do it ourselves, so we formed a band and we didn't have a clue what we were doing. What year was this then? Uh, this has been 19... I tried to do it in 77, but I was way too young. So 78 when the band started. The drum was 13, I was 15, 16. First gig we played, we played... Um, we didn't know any chords, any scales. So we never plugged in amps before. We didn't know how to tune up. We didn't know you meant to tune up. We thought the machine had, you just put them in a row. You know, like uh, like parallel to each other. <laughs> so we just sound like a pretty awful, but at the same time, it was 100% the spirit of punk because we just got up and did it anyway. writing so we've seen fanzines somebody brought a copy of Stiff and Glue up to our school they've been to London which is like a really rare thing for someone to go to London and we thought wow it looks like somebody's just typed this and written the headings with a felt tip pen which basically is what they had done so we said let's do one but we said, well, how do we get more than one we had no idea how you made more than one but somebody's mate's dad was a printer and he said you photocopy them so he made 50 of them and that was how we started the fanzine and that's how I started writing I didn't go to a college 
we just started writing stuff for the fanzine and just basically continued on from there. So it's never really changed the whole process. So you have no um, journalistic uh, training in terms of uh, writing for a newspaper or studying in university or anything like that? No, I've got no training in anything. I just do my thing, you know. But what Punk taught you was it empowered you and it made you believe... Well, it made, it made you dare do things, you know. So if you didn't have the training, you could work it out anyway. I mean, I know I know that's not always that great and probably a lot of the problems of the modern world uh, is it that, you know, that thing where they have a disdain for experts, don't they? And everything, and decisions are made by complete idiots, hence the Tory party, you know. So it's not completely out of their depth, you know, full of people who don't really know anything. Um, but we worked it out, you know. That's the thing is, it, it's, it's great that people are encouraged to do things and not locked out. But once you're in there, work it out, you know, work out how to do it to the best of your means, isn't it? You're on tour. You're, this is why it's weird. I was I saw you bubble up on the internet that you're going to do a, a talk in Galway, and then I was in Monroe's doing something else, and you walked into the room, and I went, "Oh, there's John <laughs> Rob." <laughs> yeah. So uh, tell me about your the tour that you're. What are you promoting, and where have you been, and where are you going to, and so on? Well, I did a book earlier this year called "The Art of Darkness: The History of Goth," which is. Uh, it's, it's a huge book about the history of goth, basically, that's the title. So it's 160,000 words, proper deep dive, starts the fall of Rome and ends with Instagram influences. But I mean, the bulk of the book's built around the classic bands in that period. And it's basically just to um, sort of reframe it because a lot of people are quite sniffy about that music, you know, in media terms or whatever. And I just want to say some of the greatest art rock that's cut the UK, well, not Ireland, as well, Virgin Prunes, that was ever produced came out of that scene. time the music press don't really embrace bands that have that dress up you know it's kind of looked down on isn't it you know so i wanted to celebrate those bands and celebrate that culture and recalibrate it which weirdly it actually worked it has happened so now i'm starting to meet loads of young bands turning up at the events you know saying they'd read the book and they got into all these bands they never heard of and it helped cross-pollinate their version of post-punk because post-punk story had been really reducted into the idea that all post-punk was just a gang of four on the fall who were great bands and that was it there wasn't anything else well Bauhaus were equally artful and equally groundbreaking and they should be in the equation as well so so that's that was a challenge and that's what I set out to do and it, I think it's kind of succeeded mm-hmm. tell me about the amount of research that you've had to do for the book well, I think like any proper music writer, you actually live it. You're actually in it. You actually spend all your life doing it. So any any music stuff from like punk, post-punk and onwards, I, I was there. I, I was at most of the gigs. I was into the music when it came out. And I was in Manchester. Um, I, well, Blackpool initially, then Manchester, then just going around the country, touring, playing festivals, going to festivals, going to loads of gigs, interviewing people, I've interviewed nearly everybody. So, I mean, that's not all the research. I mean, but that's a pretty good base to start from. I think like what nowadays, most people just go around the internet and look for the rest of the stuff. That's what you do, isn't it? I mean, when I first wrote books, there was no internet. 
you know, so you had to you had to actually go and get the information, which was harder, and you couldn't get all the information as well. So there's some bits. I mean, bands are terrible for uh, getting information from because most bands don't know their own stories, or they're not interested in them, or they have a very slanted view where it's it's their version of the story. So it's really hard to read between the lines. You try and amalgamate all the stories in something roughly. Well, then, then, of course, there's no such thing as truth. There's, a, mm. there's just like, you know, and, and the, the truth is all contextual, and it? it's contextual between the people you're interviewing and also the times that you're in, which completely change the, what that truth is as well, isn't it? The slant on it and, and the, um, the colours of it. There's a great footage of uh, Bowie, and he's being interviewed in front of a studio audience, and somebody sings out um, one of the tracks that he recorded is here from Lower Heroes, and he, whatever album it was from, he said, oh, that's from, you know, low. And then the audience corrected him and said, no, it's actually from here. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, and, and you think, you know, oh, my God, he doesn't know his material. But you look in 1977, what Bowie did, he did, he, he recorded low, he recorded Heroes, he produced Lust for Life, and he went on tour with Iggy Pop as his keyboard player. So I can understand. Well, for him, all those songs are written all at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to the actual, those two albums are so similar mm. that you know they, they, you would mix them up, wouldn't you? They are, and you know there was four albums, wasn't it? Because there's also the other Iggy albums, wasn't it? You know, the Idiots, which is actually the best record of all at that period, isn't it? That's the one where he got really experimental because it wasn't his record, so he, he got his more far out ideas and, and dumped them on Iggy. And ended up with making the best record because that's an amazing record, isn't it? And in my book, I think that little period is pretty influential on the whole scene. Did you cover that period? Oh, yeah, completely, yeah. I mean, obviously, Bowie Glam is really important because Glam, a lot of the people who formed the original goth bands came through Glam. But that, that kind of Berlin period, because of its darkness and its minimalism and its embracing new technology, was quite an influence on what goth would become. Were the main proponents that led goth to goth? Well, I think, I think so, if you, so you mentioned punk, so yeah, what other factors? If you reduce it down to mathematical equation, Jim Morrison plus David Bowie equals goth. But of course, we're missing out on a lot of stuff there. But they're the two massive key players. I mean, I know Nico's really important, the Velvets are really important, the Stooges are really important, loads of glam was really important. It's all in there. But you know, if you're making it really, really simplistic, if you haven't got a lot of time to get into it. I mean, the influence of the Doors is massive, isn't it? So Jim Morrison, you know, baritone, dress about leather, songs about sex and death, you know, uh, embrace of other romantic poets and things. It's it's pretty well a goth prototype, goth template. 
And it came into the culture of our apocalypse now in 1979. So that was the first time most people, my generation, heard The Doors. And most people, when, in the end, the song, the end in the film, soundtrack so powerful. And it sounded so contemporary as well. And it was another escape route out of punk, you know. So it, embra it embraced that intensity of punk, but in a different musical way. So you didn't have to keep playing the same three chords over and over. It was like, look, you can actually, you can actually embrace all these other themes, these themes that we're all into, but in musically different ways. And it was a door opener, which people took into different places. Have a grandparent that you never met? Do you wonder what they were like? What type of life did they have? What type of person were they? How did they laugh? Both of my grandfathers had passed before I was born, so in 2006, when there was no signs of my children arriving anytime soon, I video interviewed both my parents. I asked them about their lives, the holidays they had, their parents, their grandparents. How did they meet? What did they do and what were they like? Where's their final resting place? Some time elapsed, my children did come along, and then my mother passed on, and yeah, sure I miss her, but I still have a video of her telling me about her life story. Now, I video interview other people's older relatives as a present for their loved ones. If you want me to capture your special memories, Please get in touch at saltfulmedia.com. Thanks. This is the Galway Podcast. You mentioned earlier about how it has this bad image or a lot of misconceptions. What's led to that? I think it's all like all music, isn't it? They, they just get reduced, don't they, to a picture postcard. So punk, for a long time, people just thought it was a couple of people spitting each other, Mohicans, and punk wasn't really that at all. You know, punk... I mean, it took John Savage's England's Dreaming to reframe punk as something that was, you know, there was an art to it, you know, it was, it was artful, the Sex Pistols were artful, you know, they, there was a pretense that it was stupid, but it, that was only a pretense, right? I mean, John Iden, especially then, was, was really intelligent, you know, and dangerously intelligent, so... I am an anti-coaster, I am an anarchoaster, don't know what I want, but I know how to get it, I want to destroy, pass it by, cause I want to be an now, dogs, buddy. In a way that you know, it had to be turned into something stupid to take to stop it being dangerous and inspiring. Where for a lot of people got into it, the, the thing about punk was going up, not going down. It was like dressing up, it was thinking up, it was like creating stuff. You know, it didn't have to be in that template to punk. 
And um, those kind of people probably were the most interested people that came out of punk in the end. And it's the same with goth as well. And it was all, but most people don't have time, do they, to look at the nuances of anything. So they get reduced, don't they? So goth becomes miserable, moping kids with white faces and black hair. That's it, nothing else, you know. And there's a lot more to it when you unpack it, you know. It's, it's, it's a scene that embraces its own history. It's a scene that understood us, you know, the, like Lord Byron's in there or or romantic poets or romantic architecture. It's all part of the story, you know, and it's uh, it's not, you know, a couple of records and one haircut. Well, her clothes are blacker than the blackest heart And her face is whiter than the snows apart She wears top it's funny, you know, to think of the cure and the reductions that one makes and then Freddie, I'm in love, popped into my head and it's the most sunshine song. It's up there in terms of happiness. It's up there with ABBA, you know, in terms of like the brightness. It is, but it's still got a melancholy to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's always, no matter, you know, even... As, though, the, as has ABBA. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ABBA, some ABBA songs are really tragic, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's not like Goth's the only type of music that ever made music that has a certain darkness to it. Thursday doesn't even 
I think people are totally capable of holding two completely different opinions in the head at the same time or two completely different feelings. I mean, you go to goth club and the darkest, most melancholic, most tragic song, Joy Division is a great example of this, you know, probably one of the darkest bands ever, you know, subject matter wise, but also very uplifting and really, uh, and you could dance to it and it makes you feel completely brilliant, you know, so it, it can be two things at once. It was, I think it was Martin Hannett, the producer of Joy Division, who said it was uh, it was gothic music you could dance to, which is a great description and it's one of the first use of the term word gothic to describe a band. The first is actually The Doors. Joy Division I assume you saw them back in the day tell us about those experiences uh, so we saw them play Blackpool which is a really unlikely Joy Division gig you know? yeah. <laughs> when uh, the local band Section 25 were also in fact you put them on in fact that's uh, Section 25's first album is equal to Joy Division's album but people don't know that record you know it's uh, it's probably Martin Hannah's best production sonically it's amazing and it's as dark and it's as, as interesting but because they were from Blackpool and they didn't have a very charismatic sort of I mean obviously you can't get Ian Curtis is a one-off you know very charismatic uh, spellbinding singer so all those things counter for Joy Division but count against Section 25 so I think your listeners one thing you should do take out from this is go and listen to the first Section 25 album Always Now it's a brilliant record They put them on with orchestral maneuvers opened, playing their third ever gig, and they played electricity twice because they didn't have any other songs. So it's just like it's just one of those kind of really mad bills at the time. See, Joy Division, they were a cool band to like, but they weren't that big. There was about eighty people there. The gig wasn't sold out. You know, it was um, they're a very cool band for eighty people in Blackpool, and that was it. So it's like you know when I, when I speak to young people now about Joy Division, they imagine they were out playing to a thousand people a night. They never got to that size. You know. The biggest crowd they ever played to was 400 in Birmingham the night, you know, the last ever gig, you know, and that was it. They didn't have a hit till after Ian Curtis died. You know, they were, they're a big court band. They're, they're intensely cool, but there was only a very small amount of people. If somebody was to start to listen to goth, where would you start them off at? I think uh, probably the archetype 
goth record. And not, not, let's remember, none of these bands think they're goth. None of these bands have ever described themselves as goth, but the audience know that they are. Well, with Bella Goes, Dead by Bauhaus. I think it kind of, all the strands that were coming in before sort of coalesced around that record and everything that came afterwards comes out of that record. So it's it's nine minutes long. It's kind of dark, but it's also tongue-in-cheek. It's, it's a sonically amazing piece of music. You know, it's um, a Boston over drum beat over a 4-4 four, four kick drum, so you can dance to it. Uh, a very simplistic, minimalistic bass line. Minimalism was important in goth, you know, nothing was overplayed. And then this amazing kind of guitar, you know, it sounds like Flex of Paint, and he's played through uh, Copycat Echo, so it's got a... Um, and it speeds up and it slows down. It's 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 incredibly imaginative, imaginative piece of guitar playing, which he never gets credit for. Daniel Asher, he's a guitar player, and it's another reason I wrote the book. It, it, I don't think it annoys him, but it annoyed me that people didn't respect him as being one of the great innovative guitar players of that period. Because he is. I mean, every track they wrote, he plays something completely different. It's very simple to play. It's very difficult to think of. about Love by The Cult how do you read that as an album I think The Love I think um, I mean still going back a little bit Southern Death Cult were really important bands and they would have been probably the biggest band on the scene if they'd actually held together to make an album you know when they put the first single out they were the hippest band in the country at that time Moya was it yeah Fat Man and Moya which, yeah. which both tracks are amazing and Ian Asprey left before they did the album so the album's actually a collection of oh. like sessions and you know B-side da, da, da. so it's still a good record and it's a good sort of um um, so it's, it's, it's a good it's, it's a good idea what they were like but they never made a proper album for producer to make the you know the statement album So when he, when he goes off to do the cult, he's going off on a different route and with a bit, um, and Billy uh, Duffy, they decided to do something that's ACDC kind of vibe, a bit of rock and roll in it, but they did it very well and they became a great classic rock band. But what they always had and what Ian Asprey always lends to it, they still have that mysticism and that um, idealism that he had when he was in Southern Death Cult. So no matter how rock they ever got, somewhere in there, you can still feel that um, intensity and idealism in the early days.
I bumped. I, I went to see the Colt play uh, about a couple of months ago. They played in Halifax. This really big gig, five thousand people there. And I bumped into Ian, and I hadn't bumped into him for about twenty five years. And we had a great chat. And it, what's interesting about him? He's still really switched on. So he's not like he's just, you know, you know, a lot of people in music, they just think about their bands, but he's going, there's amazing senior kids out in this town in America and they're doing this. <coughs> and there's an amazing designer here and all these kids microdosing and doing like uh, internet stuff over here. And he knew all about, he's still really switched on to underground culture. And he's sort of, we talk about Native America. It's a really fascinating one hour conversation about really cool, interesting stuff. So, and I think that's important about it. I think Bowie was good at that as well, you know. Yeah, Bowie and, and Prince and Tom Waits. I think all those guys are really have their, their fingers in a lot of pies. You, you, yeah, you, you have to be switched on to everything, but mm-hmm. you don't have to do any of it. You know what I mean? So Bowie would know what the good shit out there was. Mm-hmm. And sometimes he would do his version of it, or sometimes he would do what he was doing anyway, but know where he fitted into the scene, you know, or, you know, maybe the scenes, I'm doing the opposite, so I'm reacting to it, but I know where I am because I'm switched on to the culture and I, I understand about the whole 360 of culture instead of being an isolated island. Although being an isolated island also can create great art, can't it? Because it comes with pure 100% vision, doesn't it? Yeah, it's about distilling and then knowing what to It could be part. both. It yeah. could be distilling that's all arts out there or it could be knowing what art is out there and ignoring it all. Tuning it out, or yeah. it could not having any idea what the art is <laughs> anyway and just going in your own, idea, own idiosyncratic direction. Yeah. yeah. So, John, we're wrapping up here. Um, in terms of, yeah, where did you, where have you come from? Uh, where did you, where have you been in your tour, and where are you going to? Well, I'm on the Irish bit at the moment. So, we uh, came to do Cork, uh, Galway tonight, the Letterkenny, then Derry, back to UK for a few more than off to America. Wow. Yeah. And did you put this tour together yourself? A lot of it, yeah. I mean, the, initially, a book was I self-published a book, then it went through the roof, and I just couldn't cope with it. So, uh, Manchester University Press took it over. Uh, so all the publishing side of it's covered by someone else but some of the dates come to me some are bought myself and some are going through promoters but because they're all going really well and they nearly always sell out now there's there's lots and lots of offers and I'm running all the way to May now next year yeah wow that's that's phenomenal so if people want to find out more about you where do they go um, well, just find me online. I mean, if you look me up on one, you know, Instagram, you know, just, if you stick my name to Google, it'll turn up on all the socials. That's John Rob with two Bs. Yeah, J O H N R O double bubble B. Okay, John. Well, thanks for your time. I know it's been short and sweet. You're on your way to Letterkenny now. Yeah, on the bus. Yeah, I know. Fair play to you. Thanks. All right, thank you. This has been a Solid Media original podcast and production.